Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic Calling, Brian Lowry. Brian Lowry is a professor in the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University, where much of his work, which he'll elaborate on in this episode, revolves around societal inequities. He is also the author of Selfless, which centers around the powerful and provocative theory that none of us have an essential self, but rather that our identities are social creations shaped by our interactions and relationships with others. We spoke more about the ideas in the book and how they can offer a new perspective on some of today's most polarizing issues. So joining us on our podcast right now, we have Brian Lowry, and he is the author of Selfless. And Brian, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course, we're happy to have you. Mm -hmm. Uh, So before we dive into the book and the concepts you talk about, um, I want to make sure that you and I and our audience members are all on the same page. So you talk about the self in the book. So Mm -hmm. when you say self, what... What exactly do you mean by that? Is that our consciousness, our personality? What? How would you define the self as you describe it in the book? It's a great question. Uh, it's not our consciousness. I don't. I don't mean that. Um, as far as I know, we're not even sure what consciousness is. As, as mm-hmm. I read that literature, um, <laughs> uh, what I mean more is like your conception of self, like how you, when you think about yourself, what it is you think about. Um, that's that's mostly what I mean. And obviously the the self is a complex um, concept. Um, so it can be some people think in terms of like their brain or in their physical self and all those things are are relevant. But that's those are not the things I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you say like I like something, what are you referring to exactly? What's the I you're referring to or I'm this way? Um, what is that referring to? And what I think that is, um, is a collection of relationships and interactions in the context of your your society, your culture, that give you a sense of coherence, that make you cohere as a as a person, as a as a human being. So, in other words, our um, our selves, as we think of them, there's no intrinsic self. There's nothing. That just comes from me being me, regardless of people. It's all built on the relationships I have, the people I interact with, correct? Yeah. So another way of saying this, it's easy to say what it's what I'm saying. It's not mm-hmm. what I'm saying. is It's not a soul. That's what I'm saying. Right. And that when you think about that concept, like the, the sense of an essential you that like inhabits your body. I'm saying that that thing that you have in mind is 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 a self that is really a construction of relationships and interactions. Mm-hmm. And so my my immediate gut reaction when I you know first start reading the book, and I'm sure you've probably gotten this from other people. I don't think I'm unique in that way. Is to sort of think, well, no, I I do have this self. You know, I I know who I am, and it's you know it's all it all comes from me. And you know we're all very sure of this idea we have of ourselves. So are you saying that this the idea I have of myself, that concept, and the concept you raise in the book, are these mutually exclusive? 
It's a good question. Well, well, let me just say one first that I've gotten two reactions to the book, which I, I find mm-hmm. interesting. One is like, yeah, we knew all that already. And the other one is like, that can't be right. So, <laughs> <laughs> complete so, opposite reactions. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to make of that, but maybe that's good. I don't know. But um, are they mutually exclusive? I, I, I guess... When you say you know who you are, I, that I, that could I, actually I'm pretty sure that's not true, and that's the, the literature suggests that people are not really very clear on who they are. As an example, people have a really hard time predicting how they will behave in a novel situation. They think they know, but they they, they don't actually predict all that well. And in part, it's because we have theories of ourselves that we think are rooted in direct experience. When in fact, what we have is a lot of knowledge about how we've behaved in the past. And based on that knowledge, we produce theories of ourselves, which are not bad, but they're theories, not uh, an observation of who we are in some you know, larger sense. Um, when you say you know you, it's I guess it depends on what you think that is, if it's incompatible with what I'm saying. You think it's some essential version of you that like somehow inhabited your body at birth or at conception or wherever you think that you came from. No, we're probably not going to agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you mean you as you experience the world right now, as you when you go out and when you think of yourself as important or you think of yourself as a dad or as a son or whatever it is and you like know you um i don't think that's incompatible with what i'm saying necessarily no so i'm curious um because this idea is so interesting and as you've said can have such polarizing reactions um what what got you interested in thinking about this in the first place ah um there's the the kind of how i got into psychology which is um moving around a lot, seeing a lot of people's experiences of life being affected by where they happen to be born, who their parents happen to be, um, and seeing that clearly. So I think often people go through life where they're, they're born in the community, they go to a school in that community, they stay in that community their whole life, they go through school, at least if they go prior to college with more or less the same people, and they start to think that that's how the world works. But if you live in very different, you move to different worlds, you see like, no, that's not at all how it works. That's how it works there, but not how it works somewhere else. So as an example, um, you know, I, I knew many smart, talented, hardworking kids uh, in all different kind of contexts. So some places that are really well off and well resourced, some places that are not that well off and poorly resourced and the people's outcomes, hugely different, independent of like their abilities, their desire, just those that were not the determining factors. And that should seem obvious, but I think it's hard for people to see that. And recognizing that made me want to understand how we exist in the world, where how you come to be Michael. How did that happen? Why are you interviewing me right now? Who are you and how did you get there? Like those are things that I really cared about. And I, I, I started, I got there at first from thinking about inequities in society but there's a larger question aside from just inequities which is just how are we being constructed by the world we live in how did you how did you become you how did i become me and what does that mean like that's how i got there i just really want to understand how we exist in the world how we end up where we end up who are we Mm. and so um 
you talk about inequity and from what I understand, I know we talked a little bit about this um, before we jumped onto this call, um, but you, a lot of the work you do at your university um, does relate to inequities. Um, can you talk, talk a little bit about what you do specifically? Yeah, so um, I'm a professor at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford. I created a program that I'm working on right now called Leadership for Society, which is designed to give uh, MBA students the opportunity to explore issues of societal importance that they care deeply about. So it's a it's an attempt to create space for them to explore those issues. Um, and I also, as a part of that, um, do a publicly available webinar where I can interview guests on issues of societal importance. Um, and students that take it for credit have conversations about those topics. Um, so those are that's kind of what I do at the Stanford GSB and then at the university, at Stanford University, I'm also now working with a, my co-director, Tomas Aminez, on standing up an institute on race, broadly defined. So a des it's designed to explore um, issues of race and focus on how we might generate solutions to large social problems. So not just things within the United States like um, healthcare inequities or out inequities in health outcomes or, you know, criminal justice, inequities in the criminal justice system or the housing market. It's also, um, we're also interested in things like the effect of global migration on democracy, right? And that could be in, you know, sub-Saharan African global migration and how it's affecting democracies in Greece and Italy, as an example, um, how issues of race change how we think about climate change, depending on who's being affected, right? So we're thinking very broadly about, about issues of race, both in the United States and globally, and thinking about how we can work with partners that are working on these issues on the ground, how we can collaborate with them to um, understand the problems better and generate solutions. So that's the other thing I'm working on at the GSB right now. I mean, at the at Stanford University, it's like a, this is a, a university level institute. Well, so you wear a lot of different hats. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do a lot of things, it turns out, at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's interesting that um, in how you just described the work you've been doing, um, it seems like there's a lot of interconnectivity and you're looking at how things connect with each other and affect each other, which kind of goes into what you talk about in the book, how we all affect each other. Um, so I'm curious, has the work you've been doing at Stanford, has that influenced the ideas you've written about in the book? Or conversely, has um, your work on the book influenced the work you're doing at Stanford? Um, I think it's hard for me to draw a line between them in some sense. I mean, obviously, the book and the work I do at Stanford are not the same thing. But the ideas <laughs> for me um, are a part of a whole. And by that, I mean, um, I'm really interested in the human experience um, and, and, and the human experience as a social phenomena. Like, how do we engage with each other? How do we make sense of each other? And in that is, is this is how you get to the book. In that is, how do I become me? Because I think that how we engage with each other determines how I became me. And that's a large part of what the book is about. And when you think about these things I do at Stanford, it's really thinking about the problems that humanity faces. And I, and I mean that, you know, at a high level, like climate change, um, the 
you know, concerns about the stability of democracy, the future of like, you know, governance of nations. Those things to me are about how we interact with each other as human beings. That's how I, that's how, that's not the only way to interpret them, but that's how I experience them. And so the things I do at Stanford are attempts to engage with those issues from the perspective of how do we think about people? How do we engage with people? And the book is an exploration of um, how we understand each other and construct each other and the responsibilities that that entails. I think thinking about people in the way you talk about the book sort of gives you a unique lens into how to examine these different kinds of issues. It seems like anyway. Yeah, you know, it's. I mean, I, you know, when I talk, sometimes it, it's. And I, I realize this. It can. It gets really high level and abstract. But the funny thing about it is, <laughs> the book is is really rooted primarily in empirical psychological science, right? You could get. You. I mean, there's. It's. It is. It, it is philosophical, but fundamentally, where I start is empirical psychological science, right? So, the idea that the self is constructed in interactions for example, is based in part in evidence that when you have a relationship, you shift in the direction of the person you're having a relationship with. And I mean shift in terms of what you say you like, but also shift at a, a level below the threshold of consciousness. So if you think that you're the inner, the connections in that exist in your brain that you might or might not have awareness of, if that is a part of who you are, well, those things shift when you interact with other people in ways that you don't, you probably don't even notice. Like, I think that's evidence in part that like who we are is being constructed in relationships. There's also, again, empirical evidence that I can get you to include the image of someone else's face in your conception of your own face, which is amazing, yeah. right? And so I can, and this this is empirical evidence, right? I can create a situation where when you look at a, a photo of you and someone else um, being morphed together, you think a photo that's mostly someone else is mostly you. Like that's that's empirical evidence, right? Like how do you make, what do you think about that? So what I'm doing in, in the book is starting with this empirical work and then saying, what does this mean? Like, how do we think about it? So um, extrapolating from there, and, and that's where it seems abstract. But again, this is I start with the empirical science and move to the um, move to this higher level, these higher level kind of claims. And I feel like in all that, I did not answer your question. Remind me of your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's OK. Um, no, I'm kind of trying to remember what I even how I phrased that. See how um, that works? See how that? See how I just changed you there? <laughs> exactly, yeah, you, 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 you took me along your ride and I, you know, where I was wasn't as important. Um, but I do think. What um what you're describing as far as how we influence each other um we do see that play out um pretty you know publicly in um what people refer to as echo chambers and how that's been such a um polarizing thing in our country um were were you thinking about that as you wrote the book yeah I do I do think about that a bit I talk there's a chapter in the book about um tech and self um and there I talk a, a little bit about how I think technology has maybe impeded the ease with which the self can evolve. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is not just the, this is not exactly the echo chambers thing, but it's relevant it's, and it's related. 
for example, um, when I was a kid, I mean, you know, I did things that are not captured on social media. There are no pictures <laughs> <laughs> of like vacations and whole whatever, you know, like mm-hmm. innocuous things like me being whatever, being an awkward, pimply teenager. Like there's just not all it's not following me all around my life. Um, what does it mean when you, you it becomes harder to forget? Like think, thinking about that, like how does that affect the the way the self can evolve? Um, what does it mean when, or what's the consequence of algorithms telling you what you're going to like? I mean, they're telling you what you're going to like based on past experiences, based on people like you. Um, there's less serendipity, right? What happens when you use algorithms to decide who you're going to date, right? It's, it's presenting you options in terms of dating, like you're not meeting the same kind of range of people that you might have met otherwise. Um, and so all these things, I think, kind of converge to maybe create more limitations on who we can be like in a strange way they they make our they might be making our world smaller by making ourselves smaller and echo chambers is is a easy way to like understand that right you're in a room and all you hear is versions of yourself speaking to you but it's worse than that right Mm -hmm. it's like the things that you when you think you're exploring you're being you're being given the things that other people just like you like right it's like the music Mm -hmm. the you know the movies the books, all of it is being pushed to you, right? And what's being pushed to you is not, hey, this is something that will take you in a different direction and change who you are and can be. What's given to you is here's what people just like you also like already. Therefore, uh, you like it too. And you do like it and it's good and it feels good and it's efficient. Like, I, it's not like, I don't want to say it's all bad. I mean, I get why people like it, but, uh, you know, I, I guess I'm old enough to like, miss going to tower records and like looking at looking through random music or mm-hmm. i still love to spend time just in a bookstore like looking at books i would not that would not be recommended to me just flipping through stuff uh, you know i um i i think that there's something that's lost in our society when we only either want to or are um allowed to in some sense interact with people just like us um, what I like to say is, what I believe is, every person you pass is a whole world. And and to only limit yourself to people who inhabit a world very similar to yours seems strange to me, right? It seems more exciting to engage with a variety of people. Like, the more diverse, the better. Like, the worlds they see and the way they can expand your world seems worthy of the effort. <laughs> You know, I was actually um, thinking about, because I remember that chapter in the book, and I was actually thinking about that just this morning. Um, I saw an op-ed that was talking about um, targeted ads that are, you know, recommending things for you to buy. And there was, you know, the tagline was sort of like, you know, why this might not be the best thing for you. Um, and it turned out the main reason was that the things you're being marketed are allegedly going to be overpriced and lower quality. But I thought that they were going to really get into this concept that you were talking about, about, you know, how it limits us in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it's, it's all around us. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, you know, I, and this is, I'm like really interested in this concept right now. This is the, this is um, a professor at Chicago, prefer, professor um, Oishi, I believe that's how you pronounce his last name. Um, he wrote this paper not that long ago called about psychological richness. And so mm-hmm. he, ta- he argues there's really three ways you can think of a good life. You can think of like hedonic, a way of thinking, you know, 
things should feel good and you don't want to, you want to avoid pain. Everybody gets that. You can think of uh, eudaimonic, which is like meaningfulness, like you're doing something meaningful in the world that matters. And he said you can think of like psychological richness, which is um, having really diverse experiences that change your perspective, that change you in, in, a, in a significant way. And that each of those things are components of a good life or different ways to think about what constitutes a good life. And it seems to me that the technology might be pushing against that psychological richness. And for me, I think of psychological richness in the social context, like the people you interact with. And for me, the people you interact with in some ways um, dictate who you get to be. Like how big a life do you get to live? How big a self can you have? Like that's about the people you interact with and what they share with you and what you share with them. There's um another topic in the book kind of related to this that I wanted to discuss with you a bit. Um, and this was one of my biggest takeaways from the book. Um, Can't wait to hear. Point... I want to hear the biggest takeaway. <laughs> <laughs> well, in terms of just thinking about um you know, the current situation or, you know, the current climate um, was the point you make about how changing the boundaries of a social group, whether that's, you know, how we think of women, how we think of members of a country, things like that, um, how changing those boundaries can be. The the reason that people get so up in arms about that is because it can feel threatening to their sense of self. And I think that offers such an interesting and not really that much talked about perspective into a lot of most of the really polarizing debates that are happening right now. Yeah. I mean, I think the the one is probably, um, I don't know, most polarizing, but one is quite polarizing is around issues of gender, gender identity right now. And I think you can mm-hmm. see it there. Just it's, it's easy to I think to see the issue that at least as I'm raising it there, which is if you think of yourself as a man or a woman or non-binary here, it it doesn't matter so much, but if you think of yourself and I'll just pick man, I think of myself as a man. um, Many of my relationships are affected by that understanding of myself, right? People are participating in maintaining that understanding of myself. The society has an understanding of what that is, right? And is it limiting? Yes. It certainly is. But it's also limiting in a way that allows me to make sense of my relationships, that connects me to other people. Right. And it's meaningful to me for that reason. And I think for many people now, the way people have often thought about is like, who should care? Who cares if somebody else wants to um, challenge the notion of what it means to be a man as I understand it in my relationships? What difference does it make to me? And the point I make is um, it makes a difference to me because those identities are communal constructions, like they exist in the community. And when you challenge what it means to be a man, it's a challenge to my understanding of myself and therefore the relationships that revolve around that understanding of me. So when I see someone challenging what it means to be a man, I can feel it as a direct challenge to me and my relationships. Um, and I think people lose sight of that. It, it's a way in which each individual's personal choice is not really individual, right? It's a way in which your ideas about what gender should be are not limited to you. Uh, and that goes in both directions. And I, I'm personally someone, my attitude is, I believe people should 
if you come to me, it does not matter to me what you look like. If you say you're a woman, if you're six feet tall in the beard, and you say you're a woman. I'm, I want to participate in that with you. I think that is to me appropriate. But I also understand that it's a request. I also understand that it has implications for other people. Um, but I, I do think that people should have the opportunity to identify the way they would like and be accepted. But I think it's also a mistake to assume that there are no implications beyond that person's request. Does that does that capture like how you read it? Yeah, yeah, it does. And yeah, I think it just really um, speaks to why people get so fired up about these kinds of issues, because, it, you know, on the surface, it does sort of feel like, OK, well, you know, who cares? They're not no one's bothering you. You go live your life. Let them live their life. But I think. The way you talk about it in the book and the way you talked about it just now just really, you know, helps it helps explain that a lot more in a way that, you know, hopefully could lead to more, you know, understanding and sort of coming together in a way. Yeah. yeah you know, like one of the things I think about is like, I, you know, the the marriage equity kind of movement, like the gay marriage, how that how the attitudes to that shifted so quickly. And I think what's interesting when you look back and I haven't done a study of this, but people talk about it. One of the strategies was to make it seem like no, nothing is really changing about marriage, mm. right? Like the photos were like, we're just, we're family just like yours. And I think right. part of what that strategy was, was to say like, oh, accepting this doesn't require a change in the concept, right? Like you can, you can still, still think of marriage the way yeah, you think of it. Exactly. Like it seems like a change, but no, no, no. The thing that you think is important to marriage is irrelevant. Like marriage is still the same. So nothing about how you have to think about yourself or marriage has to change at all. And that presumably, you know, you might argue that that was really effective in relieving pressure. But, you know, in any of these things, there's there's some consequence because it still tries to maintain the same structure, which might, again, not might. It is limiting, right? It still is limiting. Um, but I, I just find that an interesting case where you kind of, you can, as you look back, you can kind of see some evidence that that might've been a part of the strategy and understanding that we need to make people feel safe in their relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Brian, I have one more question for you before we part. Um, and yeah. this is a question that we'd like to ask all of our guests on the podcast. So since this is primarily for teachers and their students, who was your favorite teacher? Oh, I, I thought you were going to, I mean, that's actually an easy one for me, but. Um, what do you think I was going to ask? <laughs> I don't know, because <laughs> I have this thing, like I have a podcast, um, it's called Know What You See. Do you, do you know that? I don't know if you knew I, I, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that podcast is about like, you know, trying to make sense of you know interesting issues that we, we see all the time, but don't deeply understand or don't examine. Um, and I end with a question. It's like, what do you know that you want other people to see? <laughs> Just like, oh, I, like I like that. <laughs> so you can answer that question. I'll give you time to think about it while I answer your question. I'd love okay, to hear your answer. All right. Was it, um, what, what do you know that you want, want other people, people to, see? to see? Yeah. What do you know okay. that you'd like other people to see? Um, right. My favorite, my right. favorite teacher was um, Curtis Harden, who was my advisor in graduate school. Um, many of the ideas in the book um, were. The, the form that they took on was seeded by like ideas that he had. He did work on this concept of shared reality theory. Um, but more importantly, and this is always what I, I, I feel like he's my role model in many ways because he, for me, changed the way the world was. 
like the world became a bigger place. Like I, it's akin to seeing things in the world that were always there that you didn't see before. Um, and so the world really literally became bigger, more interesting um, to me. And that was an incredible experience. It wasn't always easy, but it really was an incredible experience. And now when I engage with people, like that's my goal. My goal is not to just tell you some some tricks or give you uh, rules to follow. My, my, my goal is to challenge what you believe you know, to create the space for the world to become bigger for you. And out in the book, I, I try to do that. Like it's, it's an attempt to say like, hey, maybe the way you see things, maybe, maybe the way things feel is not really how it is. What if what I'm saying is true? And if you don't agree, that's fine. Like my goal is not to convince people it's true. My goal is to create again, the space for them to expand how they think about themselves in the world. And again, Curtis Harden did that for me. And so he is my favorite teacher. That's great. I love that. So you now, so let's, what do you okay. know um, that you want other people to see? Okay. Can I, can I give you two? Yeah. All right. Okay. So my first one I'm going to say is that Star Wars The Last Jedi is one of the best films in the entire franchise. And it needs more love, more recognition of that. It was a very polarizing film and i think i think people were just scared of it frankly because it challenged a lot of beliefs people had about you know what it challenged um people's identity of themselves as fans see uh-huh. bring it back to nice. to the self nice good uh <laughs> didn't even have to do that it just kind of happened <laughs> <laughs> um which leads into the second thing i was going to say is that um i think i know that selfless is a very compelling interesting book with a lot of really deep ideas that clearly as you can see here you can have a lot of discussion about and that students and teachers should all read it so that's there we go fantastic (laughs) Um, well thank you so much this has been um really great and thank you for you know turning the tables on me at the end (laughs) (laughs) no i really appreciate the chance to talk to you about it um and also being a good sport and answering my question too yeah, you know, I was I was happy to. It's you know, let's shake things up. It was fun. <laughs> Good. All, All right. right. Thank you so much. Time, you appreciate it. Yeah. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.